Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Stephen Armstrong, who is the author of I Want You Around, The Ramones and the Making of Rock and Roll High School. Uh, Steve, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Could you start by telling the audience and talking a little bit about why you decided to write a book all about the making of rock and roll high school? No, I, I think that my tastes were shaped as as a young person, and uh, uh, I mean that's not a singular event, but mine were were sort of shaped in a, in, a, in an oddball way. In that we would go up to my grandmother's house. Uh, we grew up between Washington and Baltimore, and go up to a New York suburb in, in New Jersey. And my grandmother had cable TV, while my parents didn't. And I would watch. And back then, early '80s, a, a motion picture company called New World Pictures seemed to get its movies on the HBO and Showtime with some frequency. And I and so whenever I go up to my grandmother's house, it seems like I would catch one of these low budget movies like Saturday the 14th or Piranha and 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 see these these really sort of at once arty and ultra commercial films. And I like them. And that that sort of wired me, I think, for low budget film. And uh and on, then when I was about 13, uh, I was watching the MTV at my own house. My parents had succumbed to our, our frequent requests and had cable TV and uh, walked into the basement. The M- MTV was on and it was Lou Reed singing I Love You, Suzanne, from his new Sensations record. And I, that was like the sound I always wanted to hear. And I have, so starting from about the age 13 and I'm 53 now, I felt myself drawn to New York City rock music. And I Velvet Underground came out with their VU album, and which was a compilation of, of outtakes and unreleased songs. And I became more and more absorbed uh, in New York music. And, you know, while Lou Reed was sort of this the art range of New York music, Berlin and Street Hassle, uh, uh, there was this stuff that was more street, you know, New York City street rock. And uh, one of my buddies uh, gave me a cassette tape, uh, I guess, I think I want to say it was Leave Home and also uh, of, of the Ramones. And then uh, uh, the soundtrack for Rock and Roll High School. And I was fascinated by that that Bill Stout drawing with this, the school blowing up and uh, motorcycles and Mary Warnock screaming out a window and so forth. And, and at that moment, the, my my fascination with New York music and Roger Corman's low budget New World Pictures sort of were, were binding, and MTV at this point 1984 was programming cult movies on Sunday nights. It was already starting to move away from the all video format. And there were movies like Reefer Madness and I, th- I don't remember the other ones right now, but Rock and Roll High School was one of them. And my friend Adam. Uh, who had who had switched me on to the Ramones, uh, to street rock? Uh, he he said you got to watch this movie, and I watched it. And appropriately, I watched it when everybody else was asleep upstairs, and I snuck down. I had to I had to have this uh, this uh, encounter with this this legendary movie. And for me, it was kind of like seeing um, Boonwell's uh, Chen Andalou when when the eyeball was cut. And right? I'd walked into a movie theater in Washington, D.C. once at the National Gallery as a nine-year-old, and I saw that. It was just one of these enormous moments of cinema for me, even though it was on a boxy RCA TV, 10 o'clock on a Sunday night in my parents' very suburban um, home. I'm seeing the Ramones uh, ha- come on to this sc- the school grounds and watching um, PJ Souls and her her comrades blow up a school and I, it's just that that expression of defiance and of blowing up social norms literally and figuratively coming together with music that I just thought was excellent whether it's you know if you listen to that soundtrack there's there's Chuck Berry and there's Nick Lowe and and in the movie there's even the Velvet Underground and 
and and and really digging the Ramones. And I'm a guy who likes the Ramones from beginning to end, but but I also find those first five Sire records to be the most compelling of all. And and the 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 music that they were able to do when Marky came into the group was fresh and, and delightful for me, as Tommy had left and, and Marky was coming in of the the Ramones drummer situation. And so so you know all of this is just to say that my 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 wiring for New York City music and my affection for low budget Hollywood and all through the medium of cable TV just gave me my my epiphany. You know, my my Araby moment when I realized it. And that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a rocker, a punk rocker. But I could never buy into the Mohawk thing or or, or any of that. I, I, I tried it for a little while. I tried Jungle Boots from the Army Surplus Store, but it didn't feel right to me because I was both Lou Reed punk and uh, 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 what am I? I'm struggling here. You know, like Vandals and Agent Orange Punk too. The stuff that shuns melody, but I also love melody too. And I found that kind of nice combination with the Ramones. And so all through high school, I started. I went from being a a straight A student type and a jock to almost barely graduating from high school because I was just on the hunt all the time for music and uh, and, and 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 poetry. And, you know, like X was a big band for me, too. And X with John and, and Xene, they're really serious about writing, working with words. And I'm, I'm help, hopeless with the with musical instruments. And so punk and punk music and melody all and movies are all getting into my head, changing me. What I thought was for the better. But at the same time, I, it was pushing me to the margins and it caused a tremendous amount of dissent in my in my home. My father especially hated Lou Reed because he was worried that I would um, uh, 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 not be straight if I continued to listen to it. And uh, and so with, with a movie where, where the heroes are blowing up a high school, I, I kind of had to keep that on the download, too, from from my father. And and uh, so so that that development, uh, you know, 13, 14 years old of adolescence, it, it, I've never walked it back. I'm still a Reed fan. I'm still a Ramones fan, and I'm still a rock and roll high school fan. And and what happened is is that during that same period when I'm sneaking these these forbidden movies, these taboo movies, uh, into my my head, I see a picture called Eating Raul, and and that's a movie with Mary Warrenoff and Paul Bartel, who are both in rock and roll high school, and it's a movie where these are people. There's a married couple, but they absolutely hate sex. And what they decide to do is to build a, a, a down payment by preying on swingers and killing them and getting their money. It's a depraved concept for a movie, but it also made for one of the funniest movies of, of all time, Eating Roll. I mean, a cannibalism film. And, and uh, you know, I always locked that into my head. Paul Bartel, Mary Warnock, one of the great screen couples. And and that movie has its punk elements in it, too, with Los Lobos uh, doing a song for it. And then my father, who, of course, despised the, the Lou Reed music, and he really went after me. There was a big yelling time when I came home with a Violent Femmes record. And, and, and it wasn't the trendy Violent Femmes. It was it was later Sire stuff. And uh, I think it was Sire. But the point, he said, you know, if you listen to this, you're going to wind up being some guy's boyfriend in prison. And it was all this kind of vaguely homophobic stuff that my father was saying. And yet, even so, in 1989, we went to, I went to NYU for the summer program that they have there in, in, in writing. And a Paul Bartel movie was playing Midtown Theater, and it was called Scenes from the Class Struggle of Beverly Hills. And... Well, it's not punk. It's certainly outre and in-your-face confrontational. And there I am in New York City watching a Paul Bartel movie. Uh, and uh, my father is helping me uh, get get established in the Lower East Side for a summer. He's gone. And I had this New York summer in the place where I had always wanted to be. Even went to CBGB and, and, and saw a hardcore show. And it was, it was, it was all part of this development of uh, whatever it is in me. And I said... If I ever write a book, I'll write a book about Paul Bartel. And I had a chance, I guess it was about 10 years ago at this point, and I, I, I pitched it to a, a, an independent sort of pop academic publisher called uh, McFarlane. I said, how about a book on Paul Bartel? 
it's a name nobody remembers, but you, you know, the bald the sort of uh, uh, bald guy with a beard who's very, um, you know, effete and fey. And, you know, camp. I love camp. I love John Waters movies and Divine too. And the other Dreamlanders. But, uh, and there was a huge punk element with with John Waters, you know, with, with polyester and, and Deborah Harry and Chris Stein and so forth. But the point of it is, is that through my development through high school and college, I was becoming a writer. I was fascinated by punk, independent cinema. And then when I had a chance after I, after I'd published some books, written some books on on westerns and 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 a thriller director named John Frankenheimer, I said I want to write about my truly favorite director at that time, and it was Paul Bartel. So I got a contract from this semi this this quasi academic publisher called McFarland, and did that book. And in the course of writing that book, I interviewed my heroes. And who are my heroes? John Waters, Roger Corman, Joe Dante. Uh, and and Alan Arkish. Alan Arkish is the director of Rock and Roll High School, in which Paul played uh, Mr. McGree. And I continued with those contacts uh, with with Alan and and Roger Roger Corman uh, lightly, but uh, uh, you know, not we're not we don't socialize or anything like that. But the, the the I kept my contacts going and. I had this idea. I'd been very much wooed and influenced, wowed rather, and influenced by Wu-Tang Clan, which I think is the greatest ensemble rap band there is, and really liked uh, RZA. And RZA organizes the clan, the Wu-Tang Clan, so that each person is able to do their thing. And I kind of got that concept with all my friends, my graduate school friends that I'd kept and gone to conferences with. And I said, why don't we sort of do a Wu-Tang Clan um uh, project in that each of you play to your strengths, but we interview people from New World Pictures. And so there was a guy named William. William, you like science fiction so much, so why don't you go and interview these people who are in the New World Pictures science fiction movies? And then I had a friend named Robert, and Robert was is 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 went and did his thing. He did, did interview Jack Hill, for instance, the one who did a lot of low budget uh, films like um. That escapes me right now, but Spider Baby is one of them. But that's not a New World Picture. And then I would do, I, you know, I like Alan Arkish and I like the the comedies of, of New World Pictures. And then we got on some other people, and it was our Wu Tang Clan um, oral history project, I guess is what you call it. And that broke down. And it's primarily me now who just does it. And we're on the third. I'm on the third volume of that, of of interviewing New World Pictures people. And you know, con- condensing and 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 getting it all so that it's a nice, readable sort of statement about their involvement with with Roger Corman and the movies that he produced in his low budget company, and and uh, and that has helped me to better understand New World Pictures, and it prompted me to watch Rock and Roll High School quite a bit, and so with that oral history. I think this is valuable to give this information out for, for writers who may, you know, how do you do it? How do you get to a, get a really decent publisher like Backbeat to, to do one of your books? And and so I had, through COVID, uh, that was my project in part, was to finish the oral histories. And we had, got two volumes out, and I don't have any right here in front of me, but uh, uh, th- those came out, and after COVID, right after when we started, when the world started going back to, to being kind of normal, and uh, it came to the attention of, a, of an agent in New Jersey who said, you know, these books are, are interesting, these oral histories you've done, but they're not really what oral histories are in book publishing, which is where you have multiple voices telling a single story. These are more just interviews that you did. And I was like, yeah, I'm a scholar. So I used a scholarly title. And he says, why don't you think about moving up a little bit instead of obscure independent book publishers? Why don't you think about uh, uh doing a book that that that's of, of of pop just pure pop and will have lots of attention and so i i put my mind to it and for a while i was thinking about doing a proposal on gremlins which was about to have its 40th birthday and i thought about it and i said you know 1974 that's when the ramones came together 2024 the ramones will have their 50th anniversary why not a ramones book that will exploit the appetite for everybody's favorite Lower East Side punk band, and uh, of course they come from Queens, but but they, they they made it down there in the Bowery, and and uh, yeah, the agent at first was like, that's not that's not going to sell. No one's going to want that. Ramones, Rock and Roll High School, 
and I, and I just, I did the proposal anyway, and he shopped it and then, and it got picked up and then I got a contract and I was able to negotiate 18 months rather than a year to write it. And I, and all of those, uh, contacts that I cultivated through the Paul Bartel book and the Roger Corman, new world pictures, oral histories. Well, they just, you know, they were there and I'm, I have the emails and I have the phone numbers and I'm not a fanboy. So I think that helps with me with my relationships with these people. They talk to me not as though I'm just like, oh, my gosh, here I am talking to the guy who directed Rock and Roll High School. And it's like, hi, Alan, can you tell me about this? What happened at this point in 1978? And they'll give me an answer. And so, you know, my way of writing a book is one third of the allotted time goes to research. One third goes to writing and then one third goes to editing and citation. So I did six months of research. I got a sabbatical and wrote, uh, you know, got half the book written on the sabbatical and the other half written in the summer. And then I did all that editing and, and got it to the publisher right on time. And uh, so it, it was great because I had many people who 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 are truthful with me about the storytelling. And then they provided me access to scripts and call sheets and photographs. And all of that went into the uh, the, the the production of this book. And rather than writing, I've been criticized for my Paul Bartel book and in, in reviews that the, Paul Bartel was a joyous person and a and, and and Armstrong's writing is a bit stiff, professorial. So, you know, I, I went and I, I dusted off my um, Tom Wolfe and and um, Hunter S. Thompson sort of that that uh, Joan Didion and I and I read people who were great stylists and and conceived the Rock and Roll High School book not as just a production history which would you know be scholarly outwardly but rather write it like a novel. And so I, I centered on the, the, as my main character, it's Alan Arkish, who's the director of the film, and have him move from being a kid who's really mistreated at his high school in Fort Lee, New Jersey, who follows his dream to be a filmmaker, studies under Martin Scorsese, works for Roger Corman, and then winds up directing what I think is the best of the punk rock movies, better than Suburbia, better than S.L., SLC punk and 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 that's it. I think that that covers it, right? What, what the original question was? Yeah, and you know what? And it covers like some of the things that I was really interested in too about thinking about um, what you needed to do to kind of put this together and culminate it because it is it isn't just kind of like oh here's this movie. It gives us this kind of history into it, history into sort of how it came together before we even get into. Um, the the filming the film locations and all of that um i'm thinking could you for um as you were talking i realized there might be some people who have never seen a uh, rock and roll high school which is a shame and you should go out and see it um but could you maybe um and you do this a bit the film but give us a you know a bit of a synopsis about um rock and roll high school and just what it is about and why this film you know so that uh listeners who might not know about it can get a little bit of a background okay well it's it's the, the film was was shot in um 78 and it was released in 79 but it's set in 1980 uh they, they have shot of a calendar and it's january 1980 the students are back from winter break presumably and it's also the, the the students at the school are so wild that they wear out administrators. And it's the first day of um, Principal um, Togar's uh, day at, uh, at, at Vince Lombardi High School. And a person who doesn't look like a punk rocker at all named uh, Riff Randall and her science nerd buddy, um, Kate Rambo sees the PA system, uh, uh, pilfer a turntable from the music teacher and play rock and roll high school, uh, and it blasts through the, the school and it causes the kids to pounce up from their desks and spontaneously dance to the horror, to the chagrin of the establishment figures there at the college, at the high school rather. And what proceeds then is this sort of adversarial contest between the rebel student and the authoritarian principal. It's Riff versus Togar. 
And Riff uh, has learned that her favorite band, the Ramones, are coming to play at the Rockatorium. And she goes and gets tickets for 100 people, including herself, in defiance of uh, Ms. Togar's dictates and injunctions. And, and so the tickets are taken from her and her friend Kate. All the other people get to go without any problem. And at the last minute, uh, uh, Riff, rather, uh, yeah, Riff and Kate get win tickets on the radio to the show. They go to the concert. There's more punishment that follows. And eventually, uh, uh, one of these punishments, rather, is that Miss Togar burns all the kids' records, which had been supplied to her by their complicit parents. Parents are in this authority system on the side of the heavies rather than the than the goodies. And uh, so after that fire, that that you know that that reference to Fahrenheit 451, and also that reference to Nazi Germany uh, with the book burnings, it it. It just only it makes the, the conditions more volatile at the school. And ultimately, the kids led by Riff go in and take over the school. And the science nerd Kate create whips up a, a concoction of, that's explosive. And they proceed outside. And the Ramones are there <laughs> playing a song. Riff pushes the detonator and blows up the school. And that's basically it. It's a very simple story. Uh, and there are other elements. There are these Nazi figures, the, the the hall monitors who are riding around in a motorcycle with a sidecar. And there are giant mice in it. And you know, it's, it's, it's a surrealist film as much as it is a sort of poke at, at authoritarian control. And it's also a satire of those rock and roll movies that made out like rock and roll was this fearsome, frightening force for social change in the worst way and again which i experienced with my father who couldn't take it that i was listening to lou reed and transformer or couldn't take it that i was listening to three guys who called themselves violent femmes right and i was so i was living in that at home in high school and and you know my father product of the 50s but not the rock and roll side of it and uh and so you know there's something about that simple story that i think resonates with punks a lot of times the movie is criticized for not being punk itself, but it is. It's going after authority and it's helping it to collapse. Bad authority. No, oh, I've got right. off topic again. No, you're good. Like, oh, and I think one of the things I think is interesting because you talk about the movie being punk, right? Um, and I found it as I was reading that, um, and I don't know much about the history of the movie itself. So I thought one of the things I thought was interesting is that the Ram- it wasn't like this movie was written with the Ramones being the first choice, right? There was this. So can you talk a little bit about that and how we even got to the Ramones? Because I feel like that gets at some of that, like, um, punk rock element because some bands were like I don't want to be or 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 at least their um their handlers were kind of like they didn't want their bands involved in something blowing up a school um and then uh some bands just wanted way more money than they could afford for the production company could afford so can you talk about that sort of um move uh, sort of getting to the remotes Okay, sure. And and it, and it always goes back to Alan Arkish and and Alan Arkish had a suburban kid, New Jersey, outside of the city. And he uh went to NYU and right next to the film department, Bill Graham had the Fillmore East set up. The Fillmore in San Francisco, I guess it was, had, had been the place that embraced Jefferson Airplane and Flying Burrito Brothers, all that sort of uh, hippie rock. And the the Fillmore East in, in, in the village, when it was just, you know, when Lou Reed says something like a circus or a sewer, it was in those desperate sort of straits. The Bowery was a, was a in, in Lower Manhattan and Greenwich Village, all cra- crazy in state of dilapidation, but that's where he was going to school when Bill Graham uh, had, you know, like Jimi Hendrix playing there. And so you had some of that hippie rock, but he also had the Beach Boys and then the Grateful Dead and then John and, and Yoko and Alan worked there. Alan Arkish was the lighting person. And and, uh, and so, you know, the who 
which he shared a love for the who just as uh, uh, with Joey Ramone. And he was just nightly getting poured, having this music poured into his soul. And, and it, be, you know, he became a, a, a rocker, although it doesn't matter if you play an instrument or not. He just has that sensibility. Rock and roll is life. Rock and roll is God. Rock and roll is love. And, uh, but so, so is cinema. And uh, Alan, wound up after getting his degree at NYU, where again, his, his major professor was Martin Scorsese. And he wins, a, he comes in third or second place in a national um, film festival for student films, which was about a movie about some a rock stars last day, last days. Well, a Alan um, left lighting shows as a, as a line of work because it doesn't really pay well. And he took a chance and, and headed West and wound up working at New World Pictures in the um, cutting rooms that they had in skeezy Hollywood. And, uh, and we want Alan and his, uh, Alan would cut trailers for the movies that Roger Corman was putting out. And so he became somewhat indoctrinated just as rock and roll would pour into him every night at, at, at the Fillmore East movies and story structure and ideas were pouring into him every day as he was taking other people's films, scaling them down into, you know, 45 second, 60 second uh, spot, whatever it was. And he became extremely knowledgeable about the Roger Corman New World Pictures storytelling formula. And all he wanted to do was to make a comedy, a high school comedy. And then as he spitballed ideas back and forth with his partner, Joe Dante, uh, they came up with the idea of a high school set film with musical elements. And neither of these guys were really screenwriters, but they knew how to come up with a treatment. And the treatment went out to a, a, a film writer, film historian named Joe McBride, a protege of Orson Welles. And McBride came up who he also knew the new world structure well too and i won't get into it it's 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 too obscure but but he's writing you know it's a factory and turning out material quickly and alan explained to joe we have to have a musical element we want a musical comedy rock and roll music the kids are going wild think that way and it was Joe, for instance, who came up with the idea to blow up the high school, the, the, the treatment that, that that Alan had developed early on for the film is it was involving like girls gym and then King, King Kong coming out of the animal lab and bursting through the roof. That was about it. Joe is a, you know, a, 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 if you will, a trained and working screenwriter was able to put structure onto that concept came up with the idea again of, of blowing up the school for almost political reasons. And when he said, well, what kind of music will the band be playing that, 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 that the students like and love? And, and he was told the tubes. Cause one thing that I forgot to mention is that when Alan was in high school at Fort Lee high school, uh, he would daydream by picturing bands like the stones and the Yardbirds showing up at a school and taking it over and playing a show. And anyway, so, so uh, uh, McBride is working with this idea of the Tubes, who were a San Francisco band that, that sort of courted the commercial and the avant-garde at the same time, sort of like Devo. And, uh, and you know, they, they got the script from him and moved on and said, this is not exactly the movie we want. We, we'll give it some more thought. We'll bring on some other writers. And during that time, uh, Roger Corman wanted... The, the movies at, at New World always were sort of evolving according to the to the uh, the fancies of of Roger Corman as he studied the market, and Roger said, "You know, Alan, you can have your teen musical comedy, but I tell you what, we're going to call it Disco High because at that time, show uh, uh, movies like Car Wash and and um, uh, oh, I mean, I'm not good in Saturday Night Fever were, were were enjoying enormous returns at the box office." And so Alan said, hmm, this teen comedy that I've been developing for a long time, it's going to be a disco movie. And here I'm a guy who might my, my, my tastes run between Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page and, and Jerry Garcia. And and so he uh, uh, said to Roger, yeah, we'll call it Disco High. But in his head, he was thinking, no way will it ever be a disco movie. And so 
Alan kept showing Roger that he was a competent filmmaker and Roger kept giving him encouragement to go farther with this project into development. And when it came time to, to uh, pick a band, there was a lawyer at New World. His name was Paul Almond, and he had previously been with Warner Brothers Entertainment. And Paul Almond set up an appointment with Alan and the film's producer, Mike Fennell, to go over to Burbank and talk to the executives there and see if they could get some access to the, 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 you know, the large bank of music uh, that, that the, um, the company has and maybe even recruit one of their signed talents uh, for their movie. And they weren't they didn't go over to Burbank to talk about disco bands on, on Warner Brothers Records. They wanted something hard. And so in that meeting, with the executives at Warner Brothers, they, they were presented with the idea of using Devo, but Devo uh, just seemed to have too much of its own concept, and it wouldn't be something that that Alan could sort of mold into the story. And he thought, I presumably that they would be even more, you know, they would distract from the story of Riff Randall. Perhaps they didn't want to just insert a musical element into the film. They wanted the, there to be an interactive quality. And then Van Halen was presented as an idea. And Van Halen, this was when Van Halen was tearing up hotel rooms and no green M and M's in the in the bowls and, and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and and it's funny to think now, but but Alan said no, they would be too wild to tame for a movie. And then the the record people said, well, what about the Ramones? And Alan said, now that would work because it's a comedy film and these guys are cartoonish. They kind of look goofy and their songs are about lobotomies and their songs are about everything imaginable that's just weird. And uh, I mean, you, you know, today you love tomorrow the world and it's the sort of Didi's fantasies about the Third Reich or, or, or something that Joey starts singing about. And of course, Joey was Jewish and, and so was Tommy. And, you know, that's the Ramones. The Ramones are bizarre. and But the, the Ramones were also power pop in that they have the hard rock and guitar riffs paired with sweet melodies. And they, you know, and oftentimes their preoccupations are, are love. And, um, like again today you love tomorrow the world so so alan thought you know this would be a great fit the music is is very accessible and the band is so strange that i he thinks he can compose his film with them both you know orally and visually and so they that afternoon uh he and and mike Fennell jumped in a car and went over to uh a hotel the bel air hotel and and i think that's what's called hotel but, but i can't remember but they met with the ramones co-managers you know danny fields the great danny fields who had found the doors and the stooges and worked with we read and linda stein who's seymour stein's husband at sire records wife wife and um the Steins believed in the Ramones and their 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 power pop mission to to return the old song structures to the airwaves that bands like Yes and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Foreigner and and Toto had 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 um, knocked out off of the charts, right? And uh, I don't know if I'm if I'm getting over my skis here, if I'm making sense anymore. But it just seemed like the Ramones were right, and when the co-managers heard from Alan that this they, the Ramones would be in a film where the ending act is the, the, the blowing up of a high school. They said, we're in, that sounds fabulous. That's great. And from there, Alan sensed, Hey, I've got to go and see these guys play live. I've got to make a decision quickly. And he uh, caught a flight to New York city Danny Fields and Monty Melnick had uh, got the got the guys scheduled at a club uptown called Hurrah, and uh, Alan went and saw them. They, they they their opening act that night was Klaus Nomi, who was the um, the opera singer who did a lot of pop and rock. And then um, oh gosh, the name starts with an M. I can't the Mumps right? Mumps. And they were a power pop band, kind of like Milk and Cookies, you know, that sort of, or, 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 or 
forget it, forget it. The the, the um, Hanoi Rocks. That's what it was. Hanoi Rocks. That that kind of range of power pop right there. And uh, and then and then and then the guys came on the stage. The Ramones did, and he was just so enthralled with what he saw. And he had a conversation with them before the show, and he they liked him, and it was obvious that it would be a good pairing. And so then Alan had to come back from New York City and convince Roger uh in in brentwood where where the offices were at that point and still are for new world pictures uh uh and and tell them hey the band that we want is called the ramones cheap trick had come up too as a possible uh band to consider for inclusion but cheap trick wanted fifty thousand dollars and uh alan said i can get them the ramones for twenty five thousand dollars and uh and roger said yeah we like them. That's our band. But at that point, Foreman thought that the Ramones were an Italian-American disco act because he, the name of the film was still, in to him, it was still Disco High. And uh, so at that point, while the band had been approved, Alan had to ask for a name change because he couldn't have a movie called Disco High with the Ramones in it. And he also said, nobody's going to blow up a high school to disco music. And then in that office, uh, uh, Alan jumped on a couch and started doing the the spinning wheel, the pinwheel, the windmill, whatever it is that Pete Townsend does from The Who and shows what you know rock and roll energy is. And Roger said, yep, yeah, okay, I get it. And at that point, the movie's name changed formally from disco high to rock and roll high school and the Ramones were on. And, uh, you know, they, 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 the prep for them was minimal. They, the, the, they did a, a tour, they were touring with Toto and, and, uh, and, and I think foreigner, they were making this migration from their headquarters in, in New York to Los Angeles. They stayed at the Tropicana motel. And right before shooting started, uh, uh, there was a meeting and, um, the band, it was clear, didn't really understand how movies worked, even though Johnny was a big fan and uh, of movies. They, they, there's questions whether or not uh, Dee Dee is even literate enough to read a script. And and so uh, almost with that first professional meeting with the, the guys, Alan sensed, you know, I'm going to have to try a different style of directing them because they're <laughs> they're not really directable. And 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 of course, that's a large part of the book is, is showing what the consequences are for a filmmaker when he's getting a group as as wonderful, but as bizarre as the Ramones to to to, you know, to be on call to make appearances in the in the movie. So that's how he got them. I'm sure I'm missing some details, but uh but yeah, so like, and that's in what one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is that it go, you know, like so we kind of see how he got them, how he kind of put together this cast and how we brought the cast together. And, and so you write about that and through that. And, and then you move to also talking about like how some of the production went down, right. And how it was um, filmed and put together. And, and I appreciate that you don't like films. You're not doing it in sort of chronologically, you're doing it in order of when it was filmed versus like, let's start at point a and then go to point Z. And so there's a cup, there's just like two sections that I'd love for you to talk about a little more um, because there's so many. Um, but one of the ones that one of the pieces and and they're both kind of towards the end of your film, but I thought they were really interesting is um, when they film the club scene and the Ramones playing at the club, but also Riff have waiting in line for the club. They didn't have one club. Um, they had to use multiple clubs. So can you talk a little bit about um, that filming choice and how they kind of had to put together this kind of club scene and then um, drive the Ramones down there as, um, yes, and like you talk about like wrangling the Ramones into this situation, but like putting all that together. Yeah, and Rodney Bingenheimer, the, the one of the most important DJs for punk, uh, what, what was involved in that actually. And so what what, what happened was, that that the bulk of the shooting uh during during the first two weeks or so was uh at at school and and the Ramones who many of them didn't graduate high school but they were all day long at 
the um, at this school, this Catholic school in Watts, and uh, the pro Mount Carmel is called. And they, you know, when you're shooting a film, you sit around a lot if you're not the director or like uh, PJ Souls, who's in practically every scene in the movie. For her, there's not much time spent in the trailer or the 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 the, the, the um the back the back room whatever it is that 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 actors go to when they're when they're not filming and uh the ramones on the other hand had these short scenes and they were forced to stay in a room all day long and they weren't really readers so they they and this was pre-cell phones and so it was just a bunch of guys who were used to sort of being loose all day long and then going to a concert and playing for a couple in you know, an hour an hour whatever maybe and then hit the road it, it, it was such an unusual circumstance for them that they started to go bonkers. And I get into that uh, with, with some of the film, with some of the book rather, where you see some, some despicable behavior that actually occurred. Uh, and, and, uh, and then it was the concert scene and it was, which involved some outdoor shooting and, and also to be in the Roxy, which where the Ramones were comfortable. So they became a lot happier uh, over these three days of shooting because again, yeah, the film was shot out of sequence and you had all the school stuff happen. Even the, the blowing up of the school was all in the can. And then Alan and his team, his crew had these three hours to work with, or these three days to work with the Ramones. And so in, in the film, what happens is, is that, that, the, the Ramones are coming to town. Uh, there's a, been a, a character named Angel Dust, a lot of drug uh, references in the film, who is a rival to um, to Riff for the, the band's attention. And the, the sequence is, is that the, eventually the Ramones show up, they play a concert, and uh, uh, there's this tangle, there's a snafu that occurs between Riff and Angel. And afterwards, that's resolved it's deal it's something to do with with riffs music being stolen that she's written for the band and then there's this opportunity after the show for the um the riff and to to meet her heroes uh backstage in in this little room and and at the time punk was becoming a thing in los angeles but it was not well received everywhere i mean these were the days when punk the the uh, punk acts like like the screamers and the weirdos and and x were playing um the hong kong cafe and madame wong's you know they they weren't playing they weren't playing bigger clubs and there weren't there wasn't a single good club in los angeles that met uh, uh alan's concepts of being the right place where the ramones would have a show and so uh so what he did with, with help with the 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 film's location scout who was also the producer mike Fennell, is they found three different locations in los angeles that they felt through the magic of editing they could you know the footage of these different three different places could be combined to make it seem like a single spot the rockatorium in the film and so the ramones who had gone nuts being locked up in this schoolroom for two weeks are suddenly in los angeles daytime shooting and and what do you get you get first of all you have the scene uh alan wanted to give the ramones a a a superior superlative entrance scene and you know they, they the ramones write about like uh you know uh rockaway beach they, they did their sort of new york city take on the beach boys and they also did they were they also do car songs too and uh, and so why not give the Ramones the big entrance scene in a, in, a, in a pink Cadillac, right? And have them come through downtown Los Angeles with the DJ who brought punk to Los Angeles, DJ Rodney Bingenheimer, driving it, right? And uh, and then have them show up on the day when the kids are trying to buy the tickets to go see the show. And so the first day to, to do that outdoor scene with the entrance scene where we're uh, the boys are sitting in the, the back of the, the convertible and they ride up uh, the, the that's on, it's on Hill Street. They, they Alan said, we'll, we'll do this in front of the Mayan theater. The exterior of the Mayan theater is great for an intro scene because it's a very distinct building. It has these tiles that were uh, and, and designs that are uh, meant to evoke Mexico uh, uh, 
the Yucatan and, and Cortez and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, the problem though is that the building was used as to screen porno films, and uh, so so the set decorators went and put Ramon's posters over on top of all the posters for risque movies, and um, that that's you know the Mayan was it was it, it was just there. They had the car come up and they had extras on the sidewalk and. Uh, right at the at the the um, box office, PJ Souls, uh, sorry, Lynn Farrell and PJ Souls, Angel Dust and, and and Riff Randall are having their their spat. And so, what did they do that day? They they the Ramones were hanging out. They were kind of sane at that moment. They got into the car, and it's made to um, uh, look like a music video almost. And they roll up and. Um, in that line were people from the germs and the weirdos that those those unsigned acts and the Ramones come right up the sidewalk, talk to uh, uh, Riff and, and Angel and then and then go in. And so that was that was one day shooting right there. Uh, am, am, I, am I answering the question the way the way mm -hmm. that's helpful? Mm -hmm. OK. All right. And then so so what happened is, is that uh, Alan had worked up a deal the 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 uh, Whiskey A Go-Go and the, the Roxy in West Hollywood, uh, which are bigger, bigger places, uh, were, they were, had the same owners. And it was decided that they would shoot one day at the Whiskey A Go-Go and then the next day at the Roxy. The Whiskey A Go-Go would, would be some, call it dramatic scenes, but they're scripted scenes and a chase and, and so forth. And, and, uh, the the Ramones did the it's the pizza scene if you if you remember that where it's uh, the Dee Dee is so hungover from drugs that he can barely speak and his eyes are wobbling in in, in, in a crazy way that was filmed at the Whiskey A Go Go and that took a day to to shoot and it, I mean this is the scene where Riff is given a, a slice of pizza and she just keeps it as a souvenir and puts it into an envelope, uh, vanilla envelope with her, with her songwriting. And then the third day they went to the Roxy and the Roxy was perceived as being great because it kind of had a lower stage and it had enough room where if they wanted to, if Alan wanted to, we could run a motorcycle through it. And that's what they do. And that was the longest day of shooting, I would guess, because it was, it was 22 hours and the, and they needed to fill the place with extras and they didn't have any more money in the budget to pay extras. So uh, a production assistant named Mark Helfrich created a flyer that he hung up around Hollywood and the punk clubs and the Cathay Grand and the mask and, and such and um, said two, three dollars uh, come be a part of a movie concert Ramones. And that is what brought all the people into to fill the, the Roxy they paid the extras paid to be in the movie and then when you're shooting a film nothing is shot uh sort of unbroken way that's rare instead it's a series of micro shots that are put together that's what a film is typically so alan would say okay action and then 10 seconds of johnny just playing a guitar really hard and then cut and so the people the extras thought that they were coming to a concert and what's more annoying than to get right into a song and then it cuts out, right? And an all day of that, eight hours, 10 hours of that, and the crowd started to go kind of insane. And they would just, Mike Fennell, when he sensed that the crowd was agitated enough, would say, okay, that's it, thanks a lot, and empty the place and bring in the next group. And and uh, so when toward the end of the night, the uh to the end of the day if you will uh there's a scene where uh kate and 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 riff the, the two female leads uh are moving through the crowd to get joey joey's attention on stage the crowd was really angry with the actors and they started pushing them and pulling their clothes and it was upsetting it was so upsetting that at one point Dee, Dee uh starts telling the crowd, come on, let them do their work. Just let them get through. So there was an intervention on the behalf of the Ramones, uh, you know, their power over the crowd to save the the the, the shooting for that day. And so, it, you know, 22 hours of this, it just, it's, it's, have you, have you been on, in a film production at all? Have you been around that? Have you seen it? It's, 
I know it's how cool. it kind of works. Yeah, yeah, I know that it's a lot of it's kind of like recording music where you a lot of sitting around and waiting and doing it again and again and again. Yeah, yeah that's it. so that's it. And 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 to sort of um, provide catharsis to these poor fans. After all the shooting was done, Johnny graciously had the band do a, an abbreviated set for the. Um, so there was there ultimately was a real show at the Roxy that night and it's not filmed, you know, but, but all day long, Ed Stasium, who's in the news right now because of the re-release of Tim, the, the, you know, there was the, um, the Tommy version of it. uh, And now there's the Ed Station version. Well, Ed Station was in a, it was in a truck and he was recording, trying to just get one good set or one good take from the, the songs that make up the mini concert in the film. And that's what you hear when you listen to the rock and roll high school soundtrack is the not one of these songs that's been cut and then reassembled, but it's actually the beginning, middle and track played. And uh, so, so the day didn't simply yield a marvelous faux documentary, a performance of the Ramones. It actually has them sounding totally peerless playing live. And it's in addition to their 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 uh, live album, it's alive, which which uh, Ed Station also worked on. Um, you know, it's it's one it's one of the the, the few times where you, you hear what the Ramones could do when they had the stage when they weren't doing studio uh, work. Yeah, and one of the things I appreciate, right, as much as this is about this filming of rock and roll high school, you don't shy away from uh, some of the things that were going on personally with the Ramones um like you mentioned like during that filming Dee Dee ended up in the hospital overdosed right um and so we kind and they you talk about how they had to go and play uh an open for Black Sabbath and how that was not always a great experience for them and so we kind of see um how this film came together but this background into not only the Ramones but some of these other actors who were part of this and, and kind of this more holistic um history than we would if it was just straight um here's how they filmed it right yeah 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 I mean the Ramones were never a rich band and so when they didn't have shooting they had to go out and make their money but that's also how they liked to live and why the filming was such a a grievous imposition on them and and yeah they did go up to San Bernardino which is close enough to Los Angeles but it's a totally different world and and um you know you have the kings of metal with with Black Sabbath uh, being the featured act, and then you have the Kings of Punk, and it was set up as a battle. I, I remember that when I was uh, was growing up. You know, you switched. At least I did, and so many of my friends did. We started out by listening to Ozzy Osbourne, and we switched to punk, and then Metallica came along, and they're covering Misfits, and it's like, is this metal or is this punk? And it got blended up, and and you know, if you listen to early Iron Maiden, it's metal and punk. But there was a it was there was seen as an opposition at that point in '78, uh, and so the Ramones went there, and uh, the the fans hurled batteries at them and an ice pick and and all that. They just did not like punk, and it's it's interesting that 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 Black Sabbath, which was about breaking the rules in many ways. Uh, would would have fans who are so you know, i guess conservative and 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 you know the rule break the the science of the, the disciples of the rule breakers have contempt for other rule breakers there's that contradiction right there but it was a really bad experience for them and then they they go to another show and and have better experience right whatever it was maybe just a pure ramones show and uh, and they were doing that when they weren't working and as for for Didi, Didi, you know, had been been doing hard drugs since he was a teenager, with his really sad, tragic upbringing, and uh, and he didn't quit the drugs for the movie, and uh, so the fans knew that Didi was a drug addict, and uh, the, around the perimeter of the um, the high school, Mount Carmel and, and Watts, uh, they would show up and they would throw bags of smack and pills and whatever else over or through the fencing and uh and he used it he used too much of it and he was 
partying one night at the Tropicana Motel and uh, Steve, Bader, Steve Bader's was around. Steve Bader's, I know is how it's more often pronounced, but so Steve was there and, uh, uh, you know, other dead boys and, and all that. The, the, the Tropicana was the punk rock motel and uh, and the cops showed up and Didi's in the back. Uh, and he starts turning blue. And so when they were en route to the police station, they, they turned it around and I guess they went to Mount Sinai. I, I'd have to check the book, but, uh, instead of taking him to jail, they took him to the hospital and he still had to be at work the next day. So you see him with that, the residual effect of having been close to overdose the night before. And that's why he's so spaced out during the pizza scene. And what was the, uh, the, what is the whiskey a go-go? Right. So you've got this, right? So we've got this movie. Um, and then one of the things, you know, at the end, you you not only kind of talk about the filming and production, but then what happens afterwards, right? Like, and how this movie is kind of um, not given the maybe props. I don't know if that's the word, <laughs> like it should have been by the company. So can you talk a little bit about um sort of what happens when they go to release this film and then kind of the legacy of this film, because I think it's probably looked at as much more important now than it was when it came out, right? Almost, what, 45 yeah. years ago? Yeah, very true. Yeah, four, I guess it would be 44 years ago at this point. Uh, so so what happened is, is that Roger Corman, the genius that, that he is, still can not entirely understand the pop moment and that's why when he was he, he you know giving a serious thought to making a disco movie it, it's 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 just off and one of his counselors one of his employees was a was a man named frank moreno very nice man I, i've interviewed him and it was frank's idea with new world pictures to for the for the company to not only release the sort of trashy exploitation films it made and, and often bought, but to also um, bring directors like uh, Ingmar Bergman to the drive-in set and to screen uh, to buy the right Stodham Sonata or something and, and and have it have it played. And Frank had uh, good taste. He was he well, he thought saw that New World could make money booking European films again Truffaut, Kurosawa, Bergman, and uh, Fellini and. It could also make its money with, uh, you know, sort of a, a exploitation nudie films, and and I think Frank was somewhat embarrassed about that that he was working for a company that that put out trash, and he Frank saw the Ramones movie as total trash, and Roger he had Roger's ear, and they decided not to spend much money and to not not try alternative strategies for bookings they just used the same old root pattern that they had for all the other trash cinema so you know we look at that film rock and roll high school now and seeing oh yeah amarcord and, and and rock and roll high school they're both beautiful art house films but frank moreno and roger corman saw it as just another sort of you know like they would make movies about like flight attendants who can do karate and they they have a fight and their clothes fall off. That's the kind of stuff that rock and roll high school, I mean, uh, new world pictures was making. And that's how Frank Moreno saw the film. And so instead of put booking it in Los Angeles and New York city and Chicago, where there would have been punk fans and people who would understand the tremendous film history knowledge that dominates the, the the movie. I mean, there are all these kinds of references to other directors and Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and I'm, I'm getting off topic here. But but the point is, is that the movie should have had an art house opening, but it was given a drive-in opening. And it was a follow the sun plan down south. The drive-ins, uh, the warmer weather allows the drive-ins to open earlier in the year. And you time it so that when the, the the summer hours change over and you're up in Chicago, you can, you know, so it would, it would go sort of northward and westward pattern of um, of exhibition. So Frank Moreno said, we're going to open the film in Texas. And, uh, and Alan is saying, Texas, people don't understand punk rock down in Texas. Why would you open down there? But no one would listen to him. So as it, as the the film followed the 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 sun and started, it was opening in 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 Florida. People are like, "This is garbage," and it was a flop. It was silly. The Ramones can't even be a real band. They're too bizarre. 
And so the, the movie is a sort of opening unremarkable returns and, and it was crushing for Alan Arkish and it was very disappointing for the Ramones. And, uh, uh, in the, and then as the movie started to move around the country, it had a, it had a screening in San Francisco. Uh, and, and at that time, it started to catch on. But instead of recognizing that the art house theaters were the right place for this movie or the or the movies that that had film aficionados uh, uh, attend them, uh, uh, Frank Moreno kept saying, nope, we're just going to go do drive-ins and, and community movie theaters, and like suburban movie theaters around the country. Well, what, what happened is, is that finally the movie opened up in Chicago and uh, Siskel and Ebert had the sneak preview show back then. And, and uh, Gene Siskel in his uh, newspaper column wrote, you know what, I think Rock and Roll High School is going to be a cult film. Well, mark me. This is a movie that's, yes, the, the plot is stupid. It looks really cheap, but there's something here that will attract a fervent following. And that wound up on sneak previews. And while Siskel said, he continued his argument from his newspaper article, this is going to be a cult film. Roger Ebert was a little bit sort of cagey about it, suspicious. No, it's just too mediocre. I'm not going to give it a thumbs up. And then at the end of that summer of 1979, when the film had still been kind of having wobbly performances around the country, Siskel and Ebert came on and they decided, you know what, actually, as a matter of fact, and the both of them are like this, Rock and Roll High School is a cult movie. It's in that same range as Rocky Horror, and it's in that same range as Pink Flamingos. These are not movies that you go to in the community theater, rather these are midnight movies and these are movies that you watch with people who wear clothing uh, to dress up like the characters. Mad, rabid fans, that's the kind of movie it is. And and what happened is, is that a, an opening in New York uh, in the village demonstrated that and that you had all the sort of freaky people of lower Manhattan and Ramones fans and art critics and all these people were coming and there's dancing in the, in the movie theater. And it was just confirming this movie has an ability to connect with a small set of people, but we would to, enormously so. And, and so it played on the movie circuit for the midnight movie circuit for quite a while. Frank Moreno finally said, you know, okay, whatever, let it, let this film go where it needs to go. And then the, the uh, law team at, at New World Pictures negotiated deals with the movie to be screened in cable TV. And I want to say it was on Z Channel, but I don't know. I, I can't remember that well. But it was it started going out and it was through TV. Like this is where I come in and I start seeing the the Saturday the 14th and Piranha on the HBO and Showtime. Well, the, the Rock and Roll High School was too, but I didn't see it at that point. So it starts doing the rounds on television. And it seems like when people see it, they like it. If they're if they like the Ramones, if they like punk rock, if they like uh, just camp and and then high video sales and it's just kind of been a thing ever since it it, it was su it was such a low budget film that it, it quickly went into the black and that made roger happy with it and and uh so so it's it's never really gone away since then and i i was in los angeles about two and a, two and a, three weeks ago and there was a festival not los angeles it was in santa monica and there was a tribute to Roger, who's 97 now, I, I want to say. And what was the first movie that they screened? It was Rock and Roll High School to a packed house. And the people there are just laughing at every joke and applauding. That's always strange when you go to a movie theater and people are applauding. But when Paul Bartel popped up on the screen as Mr. McGree, um, it just spontaneous laughter, the joy of that film. So it's been since 1979 since it came out and it still has that cult following. But it's not dating. It just is not going like like, um, you know, uh, it's a wonderful life wasn't very successful the first time around, comparatively speaking. And yet it's a movie we all know. Right. And it's a movie that many people have strong feelings about. And that's sort of what has happened to uh, uh, Rock and Roll High School. I think. So we've been talking for a while about this. So I'm going to ask you my kind of final question um, that I traditionally ask. And so the book came out September 1st. Um, and so is there either anything new you're working on 
Amazon or anything with the book that you want to kind of, what's that final, your final promotion for yourself? Oh, well, thanks for asking that. <laughs> and that one of the, um, when I was back in the early eighties, I was listening to the rock and roll high school soundtrack. There's a song that's called, come on, let's go. And it's a, a, a Richie Havens film song. I always get, for some reason, I always get Richie Havens and Richie Valens names mixed up. And I get, I don't mean to, but it, it's, it was a popular song in the Lower East Side uh, bar scene, Max's and Mother's and, and um, CBGB, all the bands knew it. And uh, in 1977, well before Rock and Roll High School was going to come to be, the Ramones went into the studio with these this power pop duo called the Paley Brothers, and the Paley brother Joey was out. He had he had uh, been trying to clear his sinuses with a tea kettle, and it blew up. And he was in New York sick, and the the other three Ramones, including Tommy at that point, were in Los Angeles looking for something to do. The Paleys were about to go in and record their first uh, uh, and only full length album for Sire. And Seymour Stein, you know, Sire was the company that that had the Ramones back then, paired up the Paley brothers and the Ramones to sing this song, Come On, Let's Go. Come on, come on, come on, little darling. Yeah. And it wound, that song wound up in this soundtrack for Rock and Roll High School. And I, I write, I get two pages to the story of that film's, that song's recording. And if you look at who Jonathan and Andy Paley are, they're not famous, but Jonathan Paley was gigging with Patti Smith. So was Andy, as a matter of fact. And and uh, they Andy went on to become a well-known um, producer. Well-known producer. He produced Brian Wilson's uh, first solo album, and he and he did the soundtrack for for Dick Tracy. And Andy has also done music for SpongeBob SquarePants. He's a I kind of think of him as like the, the Lou Reed of power pop. And then he does all kinds of different styles very well. And Jonathan, more traditional musician, but is his record. You have him gigging with with Brian Wilson and Little Richard. And so these guys are not famous. I always tend to go toward topics that, that uh, I, uh, I, I exploit them because I think they're worthy of consideration and they've been ignored. So I've been writing this article now for about six months on the Paley Brothers. And it's been, you know, the real trip. It's been a real trip. It's for Ugly Things magazine. And I wound up getting about 12 hours of interview, not simply with Jonathan and Andy, but their friends like Lenny Kay, who put Nuggets together, the guitar player for, for Patti Smith. And then Elliot Easton is a good friend of theirs, guitar player for the Cars. And I've been learning all about New York City punk clubs in the 70s and by, by writing this article and Boston uh, punk clubs. it's It's been really wonderful and uh, lots of interviews. And I've interviewed Ernie Brooks, who is the bass player for Modern Lovers, and, and bringing all you know, these 12 hours of interviews together and for a 3,000-word feature has really proved to be quite a project for me. So that's what's been occupying me. And I've been doing some writing for TV as well, but not, not under contract and certainly not breaking any strikes. I've been developing a project. I'm labor. I'm a union guy, <laughs> but, but I still have to be creative too. And so, so if, if you were to ask me and I were to give you a simple answer, I'm writing an extensive feature about an uh, inadequately remembered power pop duo called the Paley Brothers, my favorite band and my favorite record. So awesome. Well, Stephen, it's been really great um, having you. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network about your new book. I want you around the Ramones and the making of Rock and Roll High School. Okay, thank you very much. This was a real pleasure. <laughs>